Welcome to episode 39, Motivational Interviewing, Listening for and Responding to Change Talk by Robert Scholes, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist and Licensed Professional Clinical Counselor. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, This is Robert Schultz, and I'd like to welcome you to Motivational Interviewing, listening for and responding to Change Talk. And I'm excited you're here and looking forward to spending the next hour talking about what I think are some of the most important ingredients in our work with helping clients make significant changes in their life. Um, Just as a quick introduction, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor in the state of California and a licensed professional counselor also in the state of Arizona. I am also a member of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, which is an international organization of folks that are uh, dedicated to uh, ensuring that uh, motivational interviewing Theory and practices are um, taught in a way that leads to um, increased outcomes in our clients and uh, really engages our uh, learners in a way that helps them understand the material and uh, apply it uh, to their work with clients. I've been a licensed clinician for almost 25 years, and um, I have had a what I call sort of different chapters in my experience was with motivational interviewing as a, as a learner and um, as a trainer. And so I want to thank Clearly Clinical for um, offering me the chance to uh, just to engage in some conversation with you um, about MI and to really hopefully help you take away some skills uh, to help out your clients in your practice. This is the, the third course that I've uh, recorded for Clearly Clinical. Um, and, and not that it's completely necessary that you listen to the first two before this one. However, I do think there's some core concepts that were discussed in the first two courses. Uh, the introduction to motivational interviewing and the uh, core conversational skills uh, on motivation regarding motivational interviewing that are that are quite relevant to today. So I would encourage you to check those out as well. Um, but I do think there are some things that you'll take from today, regardless of if you've listened to those already. By way of introduction to the topic of motivational interviewing, um, it's it's is important I think to understand where it started, and it was originally developed by Dr. William Miller out of the University of New Mexico. And uh, as he was um, really taking an in-depth look at his work and his career um, and the things that were helping people make significant changes, uh, specifically around um, alcohol use disorders back in the uh, early 80s. And um, when he was on his sabbatical, or maybe one of his sabbaticals over the course of his career, he was talking to some young psychologists about his work, which at the time was uh, would be what we would probably consider to be highly behavioral. But as but as he talked and others listened, what they realized is that there was much more to it. And out of that, he really began to put down what the what the true maybe nature of the things that were happening in the room and out of that evolved the theory, uh, what came to be known as motivational interviewing. While it did start with alcohol use disorders, um, MI has uh, spread over the last three to four decades uh, to uh, multiple uh, mental health, across multiple mental health and addictive behavioral disorder uh, uh, treatment protocols um, and um, has really begun to be used uh, effectively um, in other 
client populations. Um, specifically, uh, many folks in the medical professions are using MI uh, techniques. Um, those in the dental fields uh, and those in uh, treating folks with diabetes. Um, really, anyone you could think that might be needing to make some significant health changes or behavioral changes, MI can be quite helpful for. And so the theory has spread quite a bit. Um, there are now hundreds, if not thousands, of research studies that have been done on so many different uh, clinical populations. Um, it's quite exciting, actually, to watch a theory evolve over time and, um, and, and really as a result of the research that's been done. And I, and I do attribute, uh, credit a lot of that to the founders and those that are the leaders in the field of MI um, who have been humble and open to the feedback and have taken the feedback, whether it's from the research or from those that are practicing the work and really taking that into consideration as they've um, continued uh, to help MI evolve into um, not just a theory, not just a, a, a set of skills, but, but really an overall paradigm and way of working with people. So it's been exciting over the course of my career to even watch it evolve and change. So one of the things I think that's important to, to note here at the onset of this course is to really review quickly um, what it is we're trying to accomplish in motivational interviewing. Um, motivational interviewing, um, in, in a nutshell, is a, a way of being with people and a way of listening and responding to people who are um, either lacking or who are working towards building greater intrinsic motivation to make changes in their life. And when we think about our clients or we think about ourselves, we recognize um, that that intrinsic motivation um, increases and decreases um, sometimes across weeks, sometimes across days, sometimes across hours, um, that it is a very dynamic variable in our, uh, that, that is highly uh, correlated with whether we um, make or sustain behavior changes in our life. So, you know, as a perfect example, um, you know, I may be, for example, working on eating in a more healthy way, and I may um, have set a course and be in very much of an action phase of my work on, you know, eating a lower fat diet, um, eating fewer carbs, eating more healthy proteins, and I may be on a great track. Um, and then I may go to um, a benefit dinner like I did tonight. And there was some amazing um, <coughs> carne asada um, at the dinner, as well as some amazing guacamole and some chips that were homemade and right out of the deep fryer. Um, I, I Admittedly, my intrinsic motivation decreased at that moment. And I tried to think about all the reasons why um, I, I wanted to make sure I, I kept to my healthy eating. And I'm sure that it actually did influence the, the degree to which I indulged. <laughs> However, in the presence of things that, um, or foods in this case, that produced a strong physiological uh, positive reaction, and made me quite hungry for those items. Um, I, I did indulge, yeah, even though I, I probably, if I if you would have asked me before the dinner if I would have eaten the amount that I would have uh, eaten, um, I probably would have said no. I'll, I'll be really conscious of that. So, the point I'm making by by telling you about my challenges is <clears throat> that this issue of motivation is something we all deal with. And, um, and it's something our clients deal with. And it's something 
we as effective cl clinicians need to be constantly aware of. I remember a conversation I was having just a few days ago with a newer clinician in the field, and he was quite frustrated with one of his clients who is in very early recovery from um, a stimulant abuse disorder. And the clinician was remarking, I, I don't know why I'm, I'm wasting my time with this guy. He's really not interested in changing. Um, you know, I, I feel bad for taking his money. And on one hand, I have a lot of trust in this clinician and I, I believe that he's doing amazing work. Um, on the other hand, um, I, I pointed him back to sort of our conversations about motivation and change and how for this young guy, where he was and the amount of change talk, which we'll talk in great detail about later in this, in this presentation, um, was actually fairly typical for a guy at his stage of recovery, especially from where he, where he came in. And so it's important that we begin to appreciate um, that this, this issue of motivation, this, this, this process of people changing is a long process. And it's something where people take a couple steps forward, maybe a step back, maybe four steps back um, on their way to making a more sustained change. What's most important for our conversation today is that we can begin to identify what kind of statements our clients are making. You know, are they statements that are moving clients forward or moving them forward? Are they what we refer to as change statements, which I'll define here as any utterance towards change, even a little bit of change, is what we would consider to be change talk. And we should be very aware of and tuning our ears into any movement towards change. At the same time, we need to be aware of when clients are engaging in what we would refer to as sustained talk or status quo talk, where they're just kind of sitting in idle. They're in neutral. They're not really moving one direction or another. You know, as we referenced quite a bit in previous uh, talks, um, they might be, in a, when we hear clients in that ambivalent state, in that contemplative state, you know, we do, we hear some of that neutral talk. We hear, you know, sometimes, you know, they're in one breath, they're talking about, yeah, I'd really like to change this, but on the other hand, you know, the, this would be too much work to give it up. And so we hear that status quo talk and the sustained talk. Um, and, and finally, we hear sometimes a friend of sustained talk, which is discord talk. And discord talk is really similar to sustained talk, but it really has to do with where a client is talking about something that really has to do more with a therapeutic relationship. And so like as an example, we might hear clients make statements saying something like, you know what, you just don't get it. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not hearing me today. That is a clear signal of discord talk. And it's really important that we pay attention to that and learn effective ways to respond to discord talk. Otherwise, we risk, really risk, uh, the client um, checking out and dropping out of treatment. Um, and, and even if they aren't physically dropping out, emotionally and mentally they're dropping out, which is just as bad. So we're gonna move in and we're gonna talk about uh, some different types of change talk that we may hear from our clients, and we will hear if, they, if we're listening well. I, I love a quote, Teresa Moyers, who uh, I, I just love her work um, as a trainer, as a researcher um, in the MI world, and, and something that was quoted from a 2009 article that she and some colleagues wrote was, what practitioners reflect they will hear more of. What practitioners reflect, they will hear more of. So the essence of that is that if we're listening well, and when we are hearing change talk, and if we're reflecting change talk back to our clients, 
or asking some key questions to elicit change talk, we're going to start to hear people talk and think more about change. And one of the key things to remember here is that what we know from some research studies is that as clients start to talk more about change, they're more likely to engage in change and have more positive outcomes in treatment. Makes sense, but over the years in the MI research, we've begun to track that. What they've also begun to track is that those clinicians who are more MI adherent and can practice these, these, set, of, these set of goals in their work with their clients, they have better outcomes than the clinicians who tend to get stuck in the sustained talk or, um, or, or get caught up in uh, discord talk and don't know how to effectively respond to it. And this is the part I do think that makes MI a little bit different um, than some of the other uh, practices of psychotherapy out there. As a quick reminder, you know, the, the real basis of MI is, is really, I think, just a profound ability to listen and engage well with your clients. In fact, that whole engaging is the first real process of MI that without it, there's really nothing else is going to happen really effectively. Um, but the engaging is just the beginning part of it. It then moves to, um, you know, that, that second phase of focusing in on, you know, what it is you're trying to change and beginning to listen for client comments about that specific behavior, reinforcing any utterance towards change, exploring that, trying to help build on it, um, and learning to really deflect and while giving voice to issues that may get in the way of change, really trying to put our focus on the, the components in the places where clients are willing to change. So as we begin our discussion about change talk, um, I, I want you to just quickly close your eyes, unless you're driving, um, and uh, imagine um, that you're out on a hike. And, you know, the hike could be, could be in the mountains if you live in a mountainous area. It could just be in an area where, you know, you have some, some hills or even just um, subtle grades, um, but places where there are some ups and downs. And so I want you to picture yourself there. And, and I want you to kind of imagine and remember, if you've walked that path again, what it's like to kind of begin that trek up the hill. And maybe it's even some of the thinking that goes on um, as you're, you're breathing, your heart rate increases, you start to perspire a little bit more, um, you're, 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 you feel it in your legs um, a little bit more. There's probably some work occurring. Um, and, and sometimes um, it gets quite difficult. And you start to even maybe even think, oh man, I don't, I don't know if I can do this, especially maybe if it was the first time. I, I remember visiting my, my parents in the, uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains, and, and I'm a pretty avid hiker, but their neighborhood was just just one very steep hill after another. And uh, there was a long, 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 long hill that went for a couple of miles winding up into their neighborhood. And about halfway up, the first time I tried it, I, I was winded. I was really defeated in my thinking and um, just like, oh man, I'm gonna have to call somebody to come pick me up. Well, I, I give the example of that because I, I think that's a lot of what our clients go through. Those early stages of change, and we talked about Prochaska and DiClemente stages of change, that pre-contemplation stage, that contemplation stage. Um, I would even argue the preparation phase is, even up to the preparation phase, is really the heavy lifting. 
it's the chugging up the hill. It's really hard work. And, and so it's the part where we as clinicians, we're walking right with our clients during that prep, what we refer to as the preparatory change talk phase. And, you know, once we get clients up to the top or the peak, and when they're in preparation, they're ready to take action, uh, they're, they're taking steps towards change, um, things get relatively easier um, because they're, it's easier for them to move forward and they're really talking about change more. And we refer to that, that sort of that preparation onward, preparation and action um, and maintenance phases as, where there, there's this sort of this mobilizing change talk occurring. And so it's really interesting when we think about it, when I think of some of the more challenging sessions are those sessions we have with clients that are in that pre-contemplative contemplation phases because we are working to help them develop some confidence and to begin to hear themselves talk about change because they maybe aren't really used to talking about change. They're used to talking about things staying the same, failures with their efforts to make changes. And so our job is to help get them to the top of the hill with encouragement, but with also really reflecting and pulling out the change that they are offering us. So as we talk about that preparatory change talk, um, we, we oftentimes uh, discuss um, what was not Walt Disney's famous movie, The Darn Cat, although that was a famous movie, um, but it's an acronym for the different types of change talk that we are listening for. And on the preparatory change talk side of the hill, as we're walking up the hill, we are really listening for and trying to elicit the darns. And I'm going to walk through each of those different, you know, phases of, um, of change talk with you. On the downside of the hill are the cats. Um, and those are things that we're also listening for, but let's start with the darns. The D stands for desire. And Another way to think about this is, you know, if you're working on a recipe and you are, you know, you know, some of my favorite recipes are, you know, stews or, or soups or, or, or breads. And, you know, there's a lot of different ingredients, different spices, um, you know, uh, you know, vegetables, different meats. And everything sort of has a reason why it's there. And when one thing is missing, um, it just doesn't taste the same. It's not as rewarding. It's not as reinforcing. And that's really what we're going to start to talk about as we look at these different darns. So desire. Um, desire is an absolute necessary part of change. And we know when people are, are you know, giving us signs of desire, you know, because they're saying things like, you know, I really want to change. Um, I don't want to keep living this way anymore. Um, you know, and so we'll hear statements like I want, um, we'll hear statements like I've got to do this. Um, I wish things were different. Those are desire statements. Now desire statements are important, but we hear those statements all the time. And desire alone is not enough to produce change. And yet, I, I do think sometimes we as clinicians, we get kind of pulled in a little bit and we hear that client and they walk into our rooms and they say, you know, I just don't want to be, I don't want to be depressed anymore. Or I don't want to be anxious or I don't want to drink so much. And we think, okay. They're in action phase. They're ready to go. Let's get out some strategies. Let's teach them how to cope. They're on their way. They're, this, this client's ready. And then 
oftentimes the client and we as the clinician are disappointed when they come back the next time and nothing's changed. It's because desire is not enough. You know, if you're making, if you're making that uh, amazing, you know, vegetable, um, beef barley soup, um, you know, cutting up the, the, the carrots and celery, it, it's important. You got to have it. It's really important as part of the base, but it, it's not everything. And you're not going to have a full soup if you just have desire. Hope I'm not making too many of you hungry as you're listening now. Um, the second part of the acronym is ability. And this is such a key part. Um, and that really is, does a client have the, the resources and the know-how? Um, and, and tied in there too, some of the confidence to make the changes that they need to make. So you can have desire, but if you don't know how to do it, or you don't have the confidence or the self-efficacy to do it, um, it's really going to be difficult. So we as clinicians have to check in um, about what do they know about making changes? Have they tried it before? What's worked? What hasn't worked? We're, we, we need to question and elicit their, their ability around the specific target behavior. The third part is the R. And again, these aren't in any necessary order. But this R one is, is critical. And, and when we're talking about motivation and intrinsic motivation, this is the, the R stands for reasons. And I would even say it's, it has to be, there have to be some personal reasons why a person wants to make the changes they're making. So it's not enough just to have desire. It's not enough just to know how to do it. But you really have to have some something about why you want to make a change. And I'm going to give you an example there in a moment. Um, and, and finally, the end is the need. Okay. If, if desire is sort of that statement of, you know, I want something to be different. I wish something was different. Need is that a thing that oftentimes comes out of a crisis um, uh, either a threat of something that, that they're going to lose, a job, a relationship, they've been arrested, um, they've ended up in the ER, um, they've gotten some bad news from their doctor about their health, um, but it really is um, like a more significant type of desire. And it's like, I got to do this. Like, I can't mess around with this anymore. And you can... If you're listening closely, you will hear the difference between desire and need because there is a sense of urgency in your client's voice that lets you know, okay, um, this is important. Now, here's the thing is sometimes um, we have to really help build up the need, okay? And it's through our conversations with clients they may have desirability and reasons, but there's just really not that sense of urgency. And so we're having to kind of pull out and help to strengthen the reasons or, you know, th that lead to an increased need to make the change, um, you know, in a, in a you know, within a shorter period of time. But sometimes it's difficult. And sometimes, you know, people just don't have that need or they don't, there's nothing urgent and I, you know, and I think of a conversation I've had with, you know, some people who, you know, whether they were smokers or alcohol users, you know, and it's like they, they knew, like they knew, first of all, that the use was not healthy for them, that they were starting to have some health effects, but there was just nothing that was like tipping the scales, um, until we would, you know, we would explore a little bit more and we'd dive in and, you know, oftentimes it would come down to um, things about relationships that they had never really maybe considered before um, that really led them um, to start to really reevaluate and, and take some steps towards doing something different. So just as a quick review, so the darn, the preparatory change talk, types of change talk that we're listening for are desire, ability, reasons, and need. 
as we reach the top of the hill and clients are really now have those ingredients for change, um, we really then start to begin to move into this preparation and planning phase where they're really ready to take take some steps in the direction of change. So the cats um, are, the first is commitment. And commitment is, is a very important step in behavior change. And it's really clients verbally making a statement about their readiness to change and their commitment to change that is, that is specific. And it is, is something they're, they're sort of doing publicly, whether it's with you or with other people, but it is a verbalization. And um, the A of the cats is activation. So this is where, you know, they're really kind of getting in more to the nitty gritty, the details, how they're going to do it. Um, so they not only now are going to... Um, work out and they're committed to going to the gym three days a week. Um, they have a plan to go down the street to their local, you know, fill in the blank fitness center um, <clears throat> and meet with the membership director and have taken a plan, have taken um, steps towards contacting a friend to go with them to the gym a couple times a week. And then the, the, the T and the S of the cats is the taking steps, actually doing it, okay? And to where they're, they're ready to go, they have the plan, it's in action, and they're making movement towards making the, the behavior change that they've talked about. So these darn cats are, are, are something that I, I know when I really went in and started doing more of my in-depth training with a coach, I really changed, changed my work. And while I probably, I think I had generally decent skills at, at doing in my work with clients, I had never made a very specific commitment to looking at and listening for and trying to strengthen these specific types of change talk. In essence, I had uh, I, I was I was in more of a desire phase, but I, I honestly didn't have hadn't thought through some of the steps I would need to do to improve um, strengthening client change talk. And so, one of the first things I did, and it's something you may want to consider doing, is is just to have on your a notepad in front of you uh, that acronym yeah, or the words. Um, so, uh, you know, in the previous, uh, one of the previous conversations here on Clearly Clinical, I talked about um, the importance of tracking the kinds of responses you give to clients, whether they're reflections or affirmations or summary statements or questions. This is another area of, intentional practice that can really improve your skills as an MI practitioner. So listen for things. Listen for these different ingredients um, so that you're really creating um, you're really creating a work environment with your client um, where you're trying to pull together the full recipe rather than just trying to move the client forward with some missing ingredients. And, and I'll tell you, I'll, let me give you an example of a client that um, many years ago, I, I was working with a client and she was a college student and she was a, was a pretty high achieving student, but she was struggling significantly with an eating disorder problem. And her parents from out of state um, you know, basically came into town, they were concerned, they took her to the doctor, her BMI was around 18, which for those of you that know that, that that's really right on the edge, she had probably dropped about um, 15 to 20 pounds over the course of a few months. Um, there was clear evidence of restricting, 
um, she hadn't had a regular menstrual cycle in uh, several months. All signs were pointing to a huge problem was, um, if not already there, was was coming. And and she, like many who struggled with eating, had a very distorted image of what she looked like and what was attractive. And but she was also um, a senior in college and um, also someone who didn't like to disappoint her parents. So when her parents asked her to come to therapy, she was quite willing to do that. It wasn't a big deal to her. Um, and she kind of thought, well, you know, I can go in here and just kind of go through the motions and um, I'll be fine. So um, so I, I started doing treatment with her and, and she came every week and she was pleasant and she would talk with me. At the same time, she was also, um, you know, working with, with a doctor and a dietitian. Um, and all of us, you know, were coordinating our care with her permission. And, you know, we all were just kind of observing, um, you know, is that, you know, her, while she had some desire, um, but was mostly motivated by external reasons, such as she wanted her parents off her back, she wanted to graduate from college, um, you know, and she had some ability to make some small changes. Like she started to make some slight changes in her eating and some slight changes in, um, you know, some of the, the exercise uh, patterns that she was engaging in to, to lose more weight. Um, they're just really, what was missing was really like some personal reasons, stuff that really connected with her. Um, and she loved her parents, uh, but that was not enough. Um, and there was just no sense of urgency. So what was interesting in this case, and I think maybe some of you can relate to it, is um, she actually had she was actually working on making the changes. There was actually some level of commitment, although it was low, and she was taking some steps. But I, I would argue that, while behaviorally she was taking some steps, although they weren't consistent, um, cognitively, she was much more back in that contemplative state. She was really struggling with, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to gain weight? You know, I really kind of like some of the benefits of this restricting, this over-exercising stuff that I have going on. And so we danced for quite some time. And she kept coming, but she she was growing, becoming increasingly frustrated um, because things weren't changing um, her BMI wasn't really going up. In fact, it was going down a little bit, even though she was reporting some increased food intake. And, you know, part of it, I was just really trying to stay in an open and accepting place for her and really trying to reflect the ambivalence I was seeing. Um, and as I did that, um, she became more emotional in sessions. She began to talk about her frustrations more. Um, sessions definitely deepened emotionally, which was a good thing, I thought, but really still weren't seeing many behavior changes. And I had increasing concerns that she, she may need a higher level of care. In fact, maybe even residential care was being thrown out at the time. Um, one week she came in, though, and something had changed. And she sat down and she started to tell me the story of her weekend. Um, where she had traveled out of state to go to a friend's um, uh, baby shower. Um, it was an older friend that she had had from high school that had gotten married. And she started to tell me the story, um, how she, you know, reconnected with some old friends. It was really good. She saw her family. Um, and And then she got really quiet. And she began to cry she didn't say anything and so I, I sat and I reflected you know what was going on with her tears and 
And she began to talk about how in that moment of seeing her pregnant friend and being around her other friends talking about the future and wanting to have a family and children, that she began to reevaluate her life and what she was doing to herself. And she'd always imagined that she wanted to have children. And she had been struggling in relationships. In fact, her most recent relationship at that point in time, the guy had even commented that he was worried about her weight. She broke it off very quickly with him because she was, she was mad at him. Um, but she was starting to reevaluate what was important. We were starting to see, and at that moment, her personal reasons, her, the R of the darn, was starting to emerge. Her values were starting to come front and center, the things that mattered to her. And she was beginning to see that the behavior in the past she was on was incongruent with the values and the things that she wanted in life. So my work was to really listen for and reflect that and to begin to use that in my work with her and to begin to strengthen her reasons for wanting to change and what that would look like. And, you know, and also the challenges of sort of giving up the old life as a teenager um, and moving into being a woman and what that looked like. And, and she began to talk about how scared she was about and what that meant and brought up a whole lot of other issues. But the point is, is that sometimes um, stuff has to happen before we begin to pull out the reasons or the reasons emerge that will lead people to sustain change. Um, after that, things took off for her in treatment. Um, and her motivation, her confidence, um, her readiness, um, the importance to change increased significantly. And so even though the change was still uncomfortable, she was using much more commitment language. She was um, really using the tools more, and she was getting a lot more support along the way to, to sustain the change. Had I not been more intentional about my listening, I don't think I would have been an effective with her. And it was interesting. It was, it was during that exact time period where I was seeing this young woman where I was undergoing some pretty intensive coaching and making some pretty intentional, significant intentional changes in my practices. Um, and it was so interesting as I, I remember talking with my coach about her and how I would have responded in the past and how I responded now that I was engaging in this more intentional practice and what a huge difference it makes. But I do think that that is what people struggle with when they're learning MI is they kind of get the, the pieces and the techniques, but it's the intentionality with which to practice them and to monitor their progress that oftentimes they're just not either motivated to or they haven't figured out how they're going to do it. And that's where it really does help to kind of have a coach or mentor or colleague who's working on the same strategies with you. So another thing or strategy that you may take from this talk is to begin to go back and think about your clients you're working with and to consider the darn cats as you begin to think about your treatment plan for them and as you begin to think about your sessions with them. And you ask yourself the question, do I have the different ingredients for change, you know? And do I see people, this is always the fun one, do I see people that are engaging in some of the cats, they have some commitment language, they're taking some steps, but where you're struggling with finding some of those, where you really have a hard time naming the reasons um, specifically or the need, and kind of asking yourself the question, man, I wonder what that is, or if I missed that somewhere, or 
you know, if it's like me and the client I just talked about, where there might have been some external reasons why people had made started to make changes, but long term they weren't enough to sustain the change. And so I had to go back and really increase my understanding of and pulling out those personal reasons, which were oftentimes tied to really deep held values that were consistent with making a behavior change. So something to take from this um, as you move forward and you think about how you begin to turn the dial on your work of MI with your clients. So let's talk about some specific strategies that you can begin to use as you go into your work with your clients. So the first one is just really using effective questions. And so even though I've emphasized in other, um, other, other talks here at Clearly Clinical that we need to be conscious of not asking too many questions, these are some good places to ask questions. You know, you've done your sort of your, 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 your tracking of, of, of the different components of the darn cats and you realize you're missing some reasons or, you know, you're, you're, you're missing something that's really key. So questions that might elicit change talk. So, you know, a question that really will get it, get at reasons, you know, how will making this change improve your life? You know, what will, what will come of it? You know, if you made these changes, you know, how would life be different for you? Um, you know, another question that's evocative is, you know, how does the behavior get in the way of your goals? And so in that sense, you're, you're trying to um, have them talk more about their goals and, um, and really create some dissonance um, in the room as they start to talk about it. So in addition to asking the evocative questions, we also ask for elaboration. So once we hear a client talk, you know, give us more change talk, um, we ask for more details about it. So a client might, you know, make a statement such as, you know, I think making this change is going to make a huge difference in my life. Um, and that you as the practitioner would want to ask a follow-up question, you know, what does that huge difference look like to you? You know, I love the solution-focused questions, um, such as, you know, if that huge difference occurred overnight and you woke up tomorrow morning and the huge difference had happened, what would be different? How would your relationships be different? How would you feel? What would you be thinking? Really try to pull out the specific things that would be different. So they begin to imagine change and as they begin to imagine the change, sometimes their excitement builds, their confidence builds. Sometimes when people are in that, you know, struggling with the ability part, um, I like to really try to draw on some other examples, situations, times in their life when they've overcome things. So, you know, once they start to express change, I really try to dig in and unearth some examples of where they've done it before. So the client might say, you know what, you know, I, I know probably this is going to be hard for a few weeks, but I really think I can, I can do it. So I'm going to want to follow that up with either a question or, you know, request to, you know, give me an example of where, you know, you've tackled something that's been tough and you've overcome it. You know, what did you do? How did you overcome that? Try to try to get out more detail that they may be able to actually use in this current situation. Another MI strategy that we use to elicit more change talk is called the looking forward or the looking back strategy. So in the looking forward, we would maybe ask the client, you know, what would happen if things continue without a change? Or you could ask it in the, different, the, the positive direction. You know, what would happen if things did change? 
So we have them begin to anticipate the future. How would things change with school, work, your relationship with your parents? Okay. The looking back is where we might ask for the client to reflect on a time before the current struggle was there. And so we have them imagine, you know, that time where there weren't drugs in their life, where they didn't think about food all the time, where they were exercising regularly or watching their diet. And, and then we try to elicit from them, you know, so what was going on then? How did you do that? What were the things present in your life? Who was helping you with that? Anything to generate people seeing that either change has been possible in the past and they've done it, or of the things that would come, positive things that would come if they made changes in the future. So I'll give you a specific example. So a client may say to you, I just don't think I can get it done practitioner might say something very specific. You know, imagine it's a month from now and you've been successful in making this change. What steps did you take to make it happen? How did you get there? Another response to the same statement, I just don't think I can get this done. You know, tell me about a time in the past where you'd overcome a challenging experience Tell me about a time where you were in a similar place and you were like, I'm never going to be able to make this change. I'm never going to be able to get over this obstacle. And you did it. So the more specific you can be, the better, because it helps them to draw up in their own memory some of the positive emotion with the change process. Another strategy is where we, we query the extremes. It's exploring worst case scenarios. So, for example, you know, if a practitioner might say, if you don't make this change, what are the worst things that could happen? If you do make this change, what are the best things that could happen? Which, when you do that, sometimes you, again, be, begin to create some dissonance. Okay? And I like to also then look at the extremes and the things they come up with and tie them into some of the things that are important to them. Uh, another strategy that we do to increase change talk and really try to produce a stronger reasons in the darns is we really try to have people understand what's important to them. What do they value in their life? An exercise you can do with your clients that you can, you can find pretty easily just by um, searching the web is a values card sort where you might have 20... 30, 50 or more values that you cut out and you put in a stack and you have people put them into, you know, three different stacks, those that are most important, somewhat important and not important at all. And then as you have them take that stack of most important, you have them rank order them, things that are most important. Okay. And, and then as they look at their top five, you begin to have them look at those values as it relates to either A, the behavior that they're involved in currently, drug use, restricting, um, problems with their health, um, or B, the change behavior. And you begin to kind of help them draw connections between how things are congruent or not congruent with their own values. So that way it's less about me as the practitioner telling them, you know what, this is good for you. Um, your life is going to be a lot better if you do these things. Now, if you use the value card sort, you're, you're really having them speak to themselves. And, you know, and I always say, you know, the best way to, best kind of change is when we talk ourselves into our own change, not when somebody else is trying to talk us into it. So the values card sort is really important. So when you, and so questions that you can get at too is when you think about your values, what stands out to you as more important? You know, you talked about, for example, trustworthiness is important to you. Um, you know, how does, um, you know, how does your, your drug use fit with that value? And then they oftentimes go in and they elaborate, you know, I, I, um, I'm not reliable. 
my friends don't call me anymore because I don't show up or I don't follow through on the things that I say I'm going to do. So the last skill set I want to talk about to cultivate change talk is using change rulers. And change rulers are very simple. You know, again, you can look for them on the web. They're, they're out there. There's a million of them. But they're basically something like on a, a quick like Likert scale, scale of zero to 10. And, and we look for change rulers around some different dimensions, things like importance to make changes, confidence to make changes, readiness to make change. Um, they're really, I think, critical to use early in treatment, especially if we're not real sure where people sit. So for example, I really like to look at the importance, use one of these rulers of impor, for importance. And I like to talk to clients early on about, you know what, I, I just, I need to know where you're at, you know, in terms of how important it is for you to make this change, not your partner, not your boss, not your job. Um, where are you on a scale of zero to 10? Um, but more also important is the confidence level. So that while they may tell me they're at a nine in terms of the importance, their confidence is like a two. Um, and what does that tell you? Well, that tells you while it's important to them, they're not really thinking they can pull it off, low self-efficacy, and when we think of the darns, that's that ability piece. And so whether people have great intentions, if they don't think they can pull it off, they're unlikely to make sustained change. Um, so it's important. One of the things we do with these rulers, it's really fun, is we, we begin to scale up and scale down and it gives us some great information. So for that low confident client, I'm gonna ask them, you know, what would move you from a two to a four? And they may tell me, you know what, if I, if I just had some different friends, or for the smoker, you know what, if I just figured out how in the heck to get through those first few months in that withdrawal phase, that would help me. Well, then that gives you some information about it, okay? And gives information that you would then begin to use with them um, in your sessions. Equally important to listening for the change talk is really knowing how to respond to the sustained talk or discord talk. Much of, much of the strategies are still the same. We're using a lot of affirmations. We're helping people resolve ambivalence. Um, and we're just not getting into the power struggle with them. But we have to listen for it and trust that if we continue to use our MI skills, they'll get through it eventually. When we're hearing that discord talk that I mentioned earlier um, at the onset of our conversation today, um, if they're giving you feedback that they don't think you get it, that um, there's some sense they don't like you, they don't like how you're working in the room, um, it's really important to take time to explore that um, because they're giving you good information about um, how to work more effectively with them. Some practitioners will label that as defensiveness, um, they'll, the, and they'll really begin to basically not own what's happening. And I always tell clinicians, you know, look, when, when clients are throwing up sustained talk and especially discord talk, it's time for you to do something different. It's time for you to change strategies, not expect your client to change. So... Again, this is one of the primary premises of MI is that our job is to mirror and to stay with our clients. And it's our job to walk with our clients in a way that they feel comfortable. So, you know, again, I go back to that metaphor I used earlier on. You know, you're walking up the hill with your client. You need to think about what they need, not what you need. Okay, you may need water, but they may need Gatorade. They may need more stops along the way. And it's your job as a clinician to listen for that and ask what they need moving forward. So I hope today was helpful. I hope this talk was helpful um, and that there's some things you can walk away with. I hope the darn cats made sense and that you can begin to track your, your work with your clients and, um, and how they are listed, how they are, um, talking about change and that you're paying attention 
um, and doing things to elicit more of that change talk with your clients. Thanks so much for listening and good luck with your work. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.